For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, it's been one year since voters narrowly approved Prop 308, which allows in-state tuition for undocumented students. We'll hear about the significance of this education milestone. There's a new book called Bruce McGrew, Continuum, that celebrates the legacy of one of Arizona's most important painters. And here, Kids at Play, a group of 11 young musicians, producers, videographers, and DJs who form a self-sufficient creative collective. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Experts estimate that our state has hundreds of thousands of undocumented residents, and many of them are children. Approximately 2,000 graduate from high school each year, and it used to be that they did not qualify for in-state tuition until voters narrowly approved Proposition 308 last year. Proposition 308 allows for a much lower tuition rate, which is making higher education possible to many new students. Next, Tony Paniagua speaks with two people who are closely connected to this issue. Carolina Silva and Darlene Peralta, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Let's begin with you, Carolina. You are the Director of Scholarships AZ. Can you tell us about that organization? I know it's based here in Tucson. Yes, we are an immigrant youth-led organization, and we're dedicated to building pathways beyond high school for undocumented youth. Um, And while we're located in Tucson, our services are open for students across Southern Arizona. And this has an impact on a big number of students here in the state, right? Yes, there's approximately 2,000 undocumented students that graduate from Arizona high schools every year. Last year, voters approved Proposition 308, which changed the trajectory for those uh, undocumented students here in the state. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes, Proposition 308 was actually brought by immigrant youth who were impacted themselves. So it was a number of undocumented organizers, both in Phoenix as well as here in Tucson, that came together to fight for access to in-state tuition because undocumented students were paying 150% at the universities, the state universities, and almost out of state at the community colleges. So it's made a huge impact for students. And to qualify, they must have attended uh, high school in Arizona for two years and then have graduated or obtained a degree. And Darlene, you are one of those students that was impacted by Proposition 308. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what 308 meant for you personally? So I came to the United States when I was seven years old, and I've been here ever since. I graduated high school in 2018, but it was at a time that I really didn't know the resources that were available for undocumented students. Uh, I didn't even know that I could go to school because I was undocumented. So for three years, I ended up working as a cashier just to save up enough money in order to afford going to a community college because my first year at Pima, it was $5,000 per semester. So after my first semester, I was out of money. Uh, So I thought my college career was ending there. I thought I'll probably just take another break. That's how I met scholarships A through C. Through them, I got a fellowship. And through that fellowship, I was able to get enough money for my second semester. I was still paying $5,000 until Proposition 3A came about, and then I began to be part of the campaign, doing interviews, sharing my story in order to advocate for this passage. And you are now attending the University of Arizona? 
it's my last semester at Pima, so next semester I'll be at the University of Arizona. Yeah, and I'll benefit from Proposition 308. What do you hope to do here at the university once you begin? I want to get a bachelor's in history and a minor in chemistry because I want to get a master's in textile conservation. Okay, we'll come back to that. <laughs> and, and Carolina, so just to be clear, Proposition 308 provides state funds for or state tuition for the uh, undocumented students, but not they're not getting federal grants because of that. Can you explain that, please? Yeah, it's very different because federal funding like the FAFSA, the Pell Grant, and work-study programs are still not accessible to any undocumented student or any student who has DACA, but Prop 308 applies. We, we say Arizona high school graduates, too, so usually folks who've been in Arizona for a while and, again, attended an Arizona high school and graduated here and have lived here at least two years. So they need to, um, yeah, they need to meet those requirements to benefit. And I should point out, you are a fine example of somebody who's done quite well in this country. You have a PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? And you came here to this country as well, undocumented. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I uh, graduated high school in 2010, and that was a big year for undocumented youth because that was the year that the DREAM Act was five years short of passing. And so I knew that I needed to do what I could to finance my higher education. I I was actually raising like $30,000 in private scholarships every year to go to college. Um, I also didn't qualify for in-state tuition when I was a high school student, so it would have been more expensive for me to go to the local community college than it was to go to a private school because private institutions sometimes have more resources, so that's the pathway I took. And then I decided to go to grad school because it was the safest choice for someone like me, and I was a nerd. So I decided to go <laughs> to continue going to school while I could figure something out. And then you eventually get your doctoral degree? Yes, and I did get my doctorate degree. Um, and around the time it was during the Trump administration, so I decided to go into advocacy after. So I actually spent a year um, working in Congress before moving to Arizona and working for scholarships AZ because I wanted to work directly on policy. Your mother is from Ukraine and your dad from Peru? Peru. Mm -hmm. Yes. Why are you passionate about this subject, helping others when you yourself have your PhD and you could say, well, I'll just move on with my life and not, quote, give back? When I was undocumented, I felt very alone in my story and I felt like I didn't have educators or peers to support me. And so I didn't want any other student to go through that. And I feel the same way today because even though it's been, oh my gosh, 13 years, <laughs> unfortunately, students are still facing some of the same obstacles I faced back in 2010. And I want those students to, like Darlene, have a community and know that they are worthy of opportunity. And let's talk about that, Darlene. Had the uh, Prop 308 not been approved, what would that have done to you? You mentioned it would have been extremely difficult to continue your education. Yeah, well, still, even with Proposition 388, I, school is not a, is a, more accessible, but it's not as accessible since we don't have access to many of the scholarships that are available. Undocumented students still only have access to privately funded scholarships and some state-funded scholarships. Uh, so I would have just continued like I had in the past. I would have just gotten a lot of private scholarships. I would have applied for more. I would have applied for more fellowships. I would have just kind of hustled my way through college. And it's still the same way today, even though, yes, it is cheaper and it's more accessible. I still need to have that hustle mentality, especially if I want to get through two more years. What do you think leads to your drive? You plan to get a master's degree as well. What do you hope to do after that? When you're undocumented, you're in a survival mode. And I think advocacy comes out of survival at times. So 
I realized when I wasn't advocating for myself, no one was, and I wasn't getting any resources. So when I began to advocate for myself and speak out about my story and how policies and the barriers have affected my education, I think that's really when I began to see changes being made. And I realized I was advocating for others like me. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Carolina Silva and Darlene Peralta for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. A community celebration for Prop 308's anniversary will be held via Zoom and in person at Pima Community College's downtown campus on Friday, December 1st, from 5.30 to 7 p.m. We have a link with more information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. In 2021, author Paul Gold culminated 15 years of research and interviews by publishing the book Bend in the Wash, the Rancho Linda Vista Artist Community. It documented the colorful history of an artistic collective located in the desert on the northeast side of the Santa Catalina Mountains. Now Gold continues documenting this story with a book focused on the watercolors and oil paintings of one of Rancho Linda Vista's founding members. The book is called Bruce McGrew, Continuum. Joining me now to talk about the book is Paul Gold and another Rancho Linda Vista mainstay, sculptor Joy Fox McGrew, who was married to Bruce for 37 years. I began by asking Fox about her reaction when she first saw the book. Well, I, I was very surprised. I thought the color turned out so nice. Bruce often had a problem with, especially with the watercolors, how they reproduced, and he was never happy with the color. But I think the color in this book is very nice, and especially the oils really, really look um, like the paintings. Yeah, watercolor does have kind of a depth that's only visible to the naked eye in a way, would you say? And he dealt mainly with uh, light and color, and a lot of times the watercolor images don't have that particular inner light that they do when you see them in person. Well, right when you said that, I flipped to a page that says, Hills Above Lake Michigan. And this was done in 1993, and I was immediately gripped by the use of light and depth in this mm-hmm. particular painting. That's an oil painting, and um, the color often is very uh, correct. Um, the watercolors, I think, look beautiful. They, I think they look really nice, and uh, I think Bruce would approve. He'd be <laughs> very pleased to see that many images. Paul, I... I said to you earlier that you occupy a unique space in terms of my guests on this show because you're both an author and a publisher. So tell me something about the depth of care that went into reproducing these images for you. There was a lot of responsibility, I felt, to selecting these images. The first catalog that was done about Bruce, um, the only catalog, was done by the U of A posthumously in 2002. It's a nice catalog but it only has like about 30 images in it. And I thought, wow, this guy is so prolific. I have to um, make a better selection. So this catalog has over 100 images. And the pressure that I felt was, how do I pick the right ones? I get to be the curator of this. Am I picking ones that are the right ones, the best ones? Who's to say? And that was actually really fun because I ended up involving... Fox and Shelley, Fox's daughter, and other people looked at it too to get input. 
So it, it's it's selected work. When we talk about an artist being prolific, Fox, it can mean different things. What do you think that Bruce's prolificness meant in relationship to his art? One of the things that he did quite frequently was actually go out into the field. He carried his uh, board, his uh, pillow to sit on, his brushes. He had a bag. He would go out and sit for maybe three hours in a spot. Most of the places right around where we live, he would go into all the washes and down the wash up the hill. He did maybe 20 paintings of uh, just Apache Peak, or 30 probably. And he maybe did 30-some paintings, 40 paintings at Catalina State Park. He had all of his favorite places to go, and that he did that around the ranch too. And it was part of his uh, working, working in the field. Very disciplined. He taught two, three days a week, and then the rest of the week he'd usually go out at least three or four times a week and do a watercolor in the field on the spot. Paul, in the introduction to this book, Continuum, we see a reference to something called the Oasis Phenomena. So the foreword was written by Candace Davis and Mike Dominguez, who were one of the foremost uh, galleries, Davis Dominguez Gallery, for over 40 years in Tucson. They supported a lot of local artists. The reason they wanted to write it is that um, they felt like their place was the house that Bruce built. So I see what Mike was talking about. He was talking about the reference to water. And that's one of the sections in the book is that there's a tremendous reference to the beauty, the shimmering effect, the reflected light, and just the um, layered effect of water. And Bruce did that especially well. In the back of this book, Paul and Fox, there's a photograph of Bruce McGrew at Rancho Linda Vista in about 1988. And uh, the quote says, I go out of my house every day and look at the desert, and every day it is new and exciting. I'd just like to get your reactions to that. Well, I think that it was that way for him. Some days he would just go to the studio, but usually at least twice a week he would go out into the desert. And I think that that desert idea, too, that we lived here for so many years, was that uh, there isn't a lot of water in the desert, but he would always seek it out. He would find all these different canyons and just went every place he could possibly uh, uh, find, you know, to search out water, but he didn't always paint water. It was very important to him that he was out in the desert and, you know, doing his thing. Bruce McGrew, to me, was a person that had a lot of shots of joy in his life. He loved to cook. He loved to paint. He loved his family. He loved to travel. He loved to dress up. He was a costume guy. I could go on and on. I think that quote bespeaks the ethos of that, that he's saying um, there's a lot of things to look forward to in life, and painting is one of them that I look forward to very much. Well, again, I'm drawn to a work here in the book that is not from the desert. Mm -hmm. This is, and perhaps you wrote this caption, Paul. It says, risks taken with jangling light forms provide a big payoff. The abstract forms drive the painting into the realm of unconventional rarity. And it says Scottish Coast, 1992, watercolor, 22 by 30 inches in its original form. 
look at the audacity of that. All that that white and that blank space. What does that say to you, Fox? It says uh, atmosphere and uh, uh, clouds, uh, air. You know, just all of the things that uh, are necessary for life. A lot of times, life. I would not even know what he was going to be painting where he sat down, and he would come up with this elaborate painting like that with the uh, clouds and the uh, all the atmosphere and the mist. I would be amazed, you know, that it was just a flat water surface, a little land in the distance, and all the air in between. <laughs> Paul, what do you see? That's one of my favorite paintings, and it's still available. I've gotten to see it in person that we took a picture of it. It's an amazing painting because there's so much flat white light in it, and somehow he makes it work. It's as if the spotlights are on during the day, and I felt like he must be seeing the the light jangling and shaping and bouncing off of the clouds and all the reflected light. And, and as I said, to me, it's he took a lot of risk with that. He didn't worry about it. He just painted um, what he saw and what he was translating. I, I don't. I don't think. I think that came straight out of the heart, not so much the hand. Paul, where can our listeners find Bruce McGrew Continuum? The book is available at the Tucson Museum of Art locally, also the Sunshine Shop, uh, Deadwood Framing, and Gallery of Food, and it can also be bought online at my website, which is paulgoldbooks.com. I was joined by Joyce Fox McGrew and author and publisher Paul Gold to talk about the retrospective Bruce McGrew Continuum. You can see images of the paintings we discussed at azpm.org. What happens when you combine the passion and talents of 11 different creatives? The musical collective Kids at Play combines the visions of each of its members to produce art that cannot be confined to a single genre. Originating in Virginia, Kids at Play's goal is to be self-sufficient, distributing and managing their brand on their terms. We'll hear more next in an interview with Leah Britton. I'm Smith. I'm an artist and producer in the group. My name is Marquise. Uh, I go by Marquise Flower. I'm also an artist producer. Um, my name is Quincy, also artist and semi-producer in the group. I'm Sid. I'm a manager in the group. I'm Eddie, and I do photo work, uh, video work, and a little bit of like creative direction, kind of stuff like that, just random, and then like tour management. What's up? I'm Jacob. Uh, I do. Most of the branding, editing, social media, uh, and I do music business as well. My name is Earth, and I am one of the DJs in the group, and I handle most of our live sound um, for performances. How did Kids at Play come to be? We've been friends since high school. We started, a few of us were kind of making music in high school. I was making music in high school, and just through kind of the experience of becoming friends and also realizing some of us did music and some of us had other passions um, and photo and video and things like that. We kind of came together to just form what Kids at Play is. And we went to prom and homecoming and stuff like that together. And we just still here for the ride. We said, let's take it worldwide. Let's do it all the way.
Rap Gene. And how would you define kids that play for anyone who's not familiar with your guys' work? A group of friends that like to make cool stuff. Just it's one sentence, very simple. Cause like a lot of people call us a rap group or like a, a band, and like we don't, we're not that. So we just call ourselves a group of friends. We're called kids that play the creative house because uh, so when you think about a house, you think about family, and we kind of dedicate ourselves to make everything in house. You know? So we've never paid for any artwork, we've never paid for any sort of like service outside of the group. So like that goes as far as like mixing and mastering the music, uh, shooting the photos, making the videos, editing social media. Literally anything you can think of that you've seen that we've put out has been made completely by us. As 11 talented, creative people, you're kind of bound to butt heads or maybe have creative ideas that don't align. How do you guys approach those kind of situations? We fight to the death. <laughs> Communication is a big thing in our group. So when we have disagreements, we some of us will make the people that are disagreeing sit down and talk it out right then and there. Because we don't want to let it fester. We don't want to let we don't want to let anything like build up over time. So if you have a problem with what I did or an idea that I had, or you have a concern about your ideas not getting met, we want to talk about it so we can address it moving forward. Because you know nobody wants bad blood, and we love each other, so we want everybody to feel valued and heard. Yeah, we have a lot of family meetings. You know, like those movies they be like meeting in the living room, like dad be calling like, "Hey, yo, everybody in the living room." You know, we, we do that on a regular basis. I want to get into your guys' music a little bit more now. What's your personal favorites of your guys' stuff that you've done so far? I love Running Side. That's my favorite song. Make so much distance, they worried about your stride. It's just, it's cool to see that one come to life because, like, I just had, I had that idea for a song for a long time. Like, I, I looked back in my journal recently and I had written My Legs Free, like, months, I don't even know, probably like six months before we ever actually finished the song or even started working on it. So it was just beautiful that that actually, that was a vision that got executed and, and you know, the video and everything, it just, it really came to life. One, two, three, four. I had one question based off of your song, The Sexualization of Pharrell Williams. There's like a sound bite that's like, is there anything you used to do as a kid that would explain why you like doing what you do today? I want to ask each of you that question and see how you would answer that. I think I was always entranced with just showmanship and like, you know, stars of the world. I was a huge Michael Jackson fan growing up. I, I, I had drums, I could never play them, but I had them. And all of that just felt freeing to me. So I guess that like built up into me just like honing in around like middle school and like finding out there's an actual technical way to make music and like be an artist and, 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 and make money. Yeah, I guess for me, I've always just been a big music fan and I was just always infatuated with the way that people can say these words and they have such a profound impact on people's lives. Like they carry it with them every day. They quote the lyrics. This music moves them and differentiating the people who can do that and the people who don't know how to do that. And like just always love to be like, oh, that's why they're huge. And that's why nobody listens to this person over here. And 
just the nuances of that. And I always wrote music and poetry as I was a kid growing up. So now we're here and, you know, it kind of makes sense. I think for me, I used to like go outside with my friends and we would run around and create like these worlds in our heads, kind of like we'd like, I, I guess you call them now like role playing games or whatever, like where you just like pick a character and you kind of just dive into that world. And we would we would just go outside and like, just imagine everything around us was different worlds and like different situations. And like, we were just like nerdy kids, like just like we love comics and movies and all this stuff. So I think when I found music and I realized that people's imaginations can create these worlds within music and with art and within art, like that's all I wanted to do was use my imagination to just create anything in any world possible. So yeah, that's why I'm here. I used to do my signature like a million times in school, like in middle school and high school, while the teacher was teaching. And I would just focus on that and I was just like perfecting it for like eight years straight. And I, I have notebooks, pages full of just millions of signatures and me like changing the P and changing the M and changing like the, the way I write it. And in my head it was like, I need to have this before I graduate because I'm gonna need it somehow. I don't know what it is. And I just had this like vision for myself since the beginning. I guess I just like use that to like give me like hope, I guess, for myself to be like, okay, if I know how to do my signature, then, you know, I'm gonna look more professional. I would say one particular one was, I remember getting in trouble a lot as a kid, like at really young, maybe like 11, 12. And my mom had to find different ways to punish me. And she wouldn't do like the regular whooping. She wouldn't do like words or anything. She would take music away from me. And boy, when I tell you, I used to bawl my eyes out over losing whatever iPad, iPod, 3D touch player. I remember my cousin had to call me one time and be like, listen, I know you can take his phone, you can take his games or whatever, but don't take the boy music. So I think I've always like grown up knowing that music is gonna be a part of my life, but I don't think until I met these guys and these people that I know in what capacity or how far that would be. When I was like, 14 or 15, I got like my first iPhone, like iPod. I started downloading like apps to like do like visual effects. I remember I painted my entire room like green screen green. And like me and my friends that we had like back then, we were like little kids, we were like messing around like with those apps where you can like green screen yourself onto like, like you would superimpose yourself and just have like a plane crash into you or something. Like a super silly stuff, but we were just like having so much fun. And then eventually it kind of grew into like something more serious where I would pick up like a film camera and I was like 16 um, and I just started shooting all types of photos. But it wasn't until I met Kids at Play in like 2020 when I really took it as like a profession to do it professionally. And then I upgraded all my gear and I started getting more serious about what I wanted to do. But again, like Artone said, it wasn't until I met like this group of people where I started seeing it as a profession or as something that I could do for a living. For me, I guess music doesn't really run in my bones like how it does for them. But I guess for me, so more like I really enjoy things behind the scenes, making things work behind the scenes, helping to do things like in an organizational way. In school, that's like what I was really interested in. I was more of a little nerdy academic girl. I like the sorting. I like the figuring stuff out like that. Sid was the girl that was so good at making those gingerbread houses, bro. Mine looked all messed up. And I know those girls that were in my class that had that don't looking like perfect, bro. Sid, I had actually one question for you. What's it been like stepping into this managerial role? It's been a really fun experience so far, I would like to say. Um, dealing with 10 guys is very uh, difficult at times. I will say it's not they're not the easiest people to manage, 
but I, I love them a lot and they, they are very patient and considerate with me when it comes to me learning the, like with the learning curve, when it comes to figuring out what it takes to manage a group that has so much creativity and stardom. Where do you guys hope to see yourselves in 10 years? That's always a hard question for us to answer because it's like, we don't know where we're going to be. But I personally just want to impact people with my music and be one of the greatest showmen on earth. Like, I want light to shine through me and I want people to not be able to wait until I drop. I want everything I do to be cinematic, to be big, to be impactful. And, you know, I want to leave a mark. In 10 years, I want it to be undeniable that kids have played. It's just a movement. It's, it's raised the next generation. It speaks for Gen Z. Yeah, it's, it's kind of beautiful. Like when we go to our shows, a lot of people, what we keep hearing, or a lot of times even on our, on our social media, is we keep hearing people say, man, we're, I feel like I just discovered like something that's going to be humongous, or like I'm early to something new. And we agree with them. We're like, yeah, you did. You really, like, I'm glad that you got to discover us early because we honestly feel that in ourselves that we started something that is like bigger than ourselves at this point. Like we've gotten to the point where we just feel like a personal obligation to just express our creativity. Everything that we do is just is just gonna go up and up and that's how we feel about everything we do. Like my ego and my friends. But you looked at me so different when you saw I guess I drew downtown North Face, they might what you up. You can find Kids That Plays Music on all major streaming platforms. And you can watch the video for Runners High on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Leah Britton. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.